Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 19. In the past several episodes, I've covered the Copper then Bronze Ages, along with the Bronze Age Collapse. I've also touched on the beginning portion of the Iron Age and how that came about in the Middle East. This episode wraps up that topic, focusing on the iron, then steel, that would come to be used by the Israelites. And with that, let's get started. The biblical text tells us that while tools made from iron were present in the early history of Israel, they didn't know how to make it, or even manipulate it in the slightest. We see this in 1 Samuel 13, which reads, Now there was no smith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, The Hebrews must not make swords or spears for themselves. So all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshares, mattocks, axes, or sickles. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and one-third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. The Philistines used iron technology to the point that they had to protect the secret of it, a state secret. In the same chapter, we're told why as the Israelites sought to fight their neighbors. And this was more than a simple difference in the metal the weapons were made from, as on the day of the battle, neither sword nor spear was to be found in the possession of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and his son Jonathan had them, though they did have armor, presumably made from bronze. The next many passages dive deep into the battles between the Israelites and the Philistines, all with the Israelites having inferior weapons. But of course, they still had the Ark. Then, there's the Philistine giant Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, we're told of the giant's armor and weapons, which were a mixture of bronze and iron. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. A few verses later, we're told of the Israelites' armor. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Of course, David killed Goliath in short order, and with a Stone Age weapon. Off or go converting the weights to something more understandable. The important thing is that given the mixture of materials, helps to demonstrate how fluid the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age was. After this, and after David became king of Israel, or at least sometime between fighting the Philistines and David's kingship, the Israelites learned how to smelt iron. First Chronicles 22 mentions they were skilled in working with iron. Then a few chapters later, in 29, We're told that the leaders of the ancestral houses of Israel gave offerings of many precious metals and jewels. Among the offerings were some 100,000 talents of iron. 
The general belief is that a talent was about 66 pounds, 30 kilograms. So if they gave 100,000 talents, this would be around 6.6 .6 million pounds, 3,300 tons of iron. For my metric listeners, this would be about 3 million kilograms. That's over 130 semi-trucks of iron, at least in the U.S. For the tribes to have donated this much, they would have had to master smelting and not be reliant on importing it, especially if it had to come from their enemies. There's also a short verse in Job 28, where it reads, Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from ore, which seems to indicate that iron was being mined, not simply gathered from meteorites. There are other textual references, but I'll end with a passage from Ezekiel 22 that reads, As one gathers silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into a smelter, to blow the fire upon them in order to melt them. So, by this point in their history, and Ezekiel was written during the Babylonian captivity, in the early 6th century BC, it's obvious the Israelites not only knew how to smelt iron, but could achieve the higher temperatures necessary to melt it. Backing up a bit, we're not told how they eventually learned the state secret from the Philistines, though there is a theory. While Saul was king, and after he and David had their falling out, David, along with some 600 of his men, went to live with the Philistines, out of the reach of Saul. While this may seem a little odd, do remember that the maxim, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, was just as true then as it is today. According to 1 Samuel, David and his men lived with the Philistines for one year, four months. And the theory is that during this time, either David himself or someone in his company learned how exactly to extract iron from its ore. No proof, just speculation, but also possible. And of course, after they learned how to make iron for tools, and more especially for weapons, the Israelites were now caught up with everyone else in the neighborhood who already had the technology. And that's the Iron Age in the Old Testament. But I'm not quite done with it, as there are a few interesting pieces, and I need to lay the foundation for the history to come in the thousands of years that followed. I'm going to skip the Iron Age in Western Europe and East Asia, as it had no real bearing on the history of Christianity, at least not until well after the turn of B.C. to A.D. As you should know by now, as the years progressed, there was an increasing amount of intermingling of cultures, most, if not all, related to trade. How else would the tin needed for bronze make it all the way from the British Isles to the Middle East? So, the Iron Age did arrive in the far reaches of Europe and Asia, and usually far later than it did in the area surrounding the Mediterranean. But that history is not pertinent enough to make the cut for the podcast. Having said that, there is something I do need to cover, and that's the Iron Age in India. It won't make sense for a few minutes, but bear with me, there is a point to the narrative. The first recorded use of iron in South Central Asia was in Mundigak, an archaeological site in Kandahar, Afghanistan. In the 3rd millennium BC, 
they had established a small mastery of iron in this region. One uncovered artifact is a small bronze bell, which itself wouldn't be that remarkable, except it had an iron clapper. There was also a bronze rod and a mirror, each with decorative iron buttons. Of course, these are small-scale finds and certainly not indicative of any sort of revolution, but more of the beginning stages of the use of the metal. A little later, meaning between 2400 and 1800 BC, and further south in the Indian state of Telangana, small iron knives have been uncovered. Then, between 1800 and 1200 BC, iron weapons and tools began popping up all over the Indian subcontinent. Items such as iron sickles, nails, clamps, spearheads, and the like. This is thought to indicate the progression of smelting technology, along with trade routes that also carried the knowledge of how to smelt. Some believe that they used bloomeries, but no actual such oven has been uncovered. If they did, though, it would mean the bloomery was in use in India well before the actual bloomery uncovered on the east bank of the Jordan. Just like elsewhere, as the years rolled on, the technology advanced to the point that decent quality steel was being produced by about 300 BC. In another few years, even higher quality steel was being formed in crucibles in southern India. This required the mixing of highly pure wrought iron, charcoal, and glass, meaning silicon dioxide, which were heated in the crucible until the iron melted and a proper ratio of iron to carbon was achieved. And what they ended up inventing, or discovering, came to be known as Wootz steel, sometimes, at least historically, referred to as Tamil steel, due to the region in India where it originated. The smiths on the Indian Ocean island of Sri Lanka also became masters of the craft. Wootz steel is made in crucibles, but that isn't what sets it apart. The obvious indication that it's different is how it looks. This steel, especially when formed into cutting blades, appears striped, more commonly referred to as banded. Some say the distinctive banding and mottling patterns resemble flowing water, or maybe in a ladder or a teardrop pattern. The banding is caused by a higher than normal carbon content, which in the case of wood steel is a desirable trait. The bands are sheets of microscopic carbides within the matrix of the higher carbon steel. It was first developed in southern India around the 6th century BC. To put that in the context of ancient Israelite history, this was about the time of the Babylonian captivity. From southern India, wood steel was exported throughout Asia, the Middle East, southern Europe, and North Africa. To all the major empires of the time, at least those not in the Americas, and the impact the metal had on the ancient world is evident in references found in Tamil, North Indian, Greek, Chinese, and even Roman literature. In Persia, it became known as a phrase that translates to the Indian answer, which in that culture meant to be cut with an Indian sword. More on that use in a few minutes. 
From India, it tended to be exported as still ingots or cakes that were called woots, hence the name. Well, almost. It's actually now thought that the word woots is a mistranslation of the word wook, which was the Tamil word for the steel. It's funny how some things like these mistranslations stick around. As for its production, the method was recorded in their ancient writings. The smelters would start with black magnetite. And remember that magnetite is a form of iron oxide. So, simply put, a compound of iron and oxygen. They would heat the magnetite in a sealed crucible in a furnace heated by charcoal. And, since the crucible was sealed, they couldn't use the carbon in the charcoal to absorb the oxygen in the magnetite. Instead, they used bamboo and plant leaves, which were also sealed in the crucible. All of the ingredients were heated to the point that the resulting carbon iron was separated from the slag. Sri Lankan smiths built furnaces that redirected the monsoon winds to heat the fire even more. And, in short order, they had Woots steel. And they certainly didn't know this, but deep down inside, what they had come up with was a matrix of cementite nanowires and carbon nanotubes, along with ultra-hard metallic carbides. All in all, obviously it was mostly iron, but with about 1.6% carbon and trace amounts of sulfur, silicon, aluminum, and arsenic, among other elements. Though it's believed by some that the inclusion of some of these may be the result of a less-than-perfect refining process and not intentional, as they are not believed by all researchers to have enhanced the quality or performance of the metal. And what made this still better was its ability to be used in swords. Swords that could be both hard enough to hold a sharp blade, but still flexible. Recall that as most things get harder, they also get more brittle, meaning that instead of bending, they will break. Not so for Root's steel. And despite its reputation throughout the hemisphere, it wasn't until the 17th century AD that Western European scientists actually started to determine why it was different. Up until that point, the steel in the Western world was mostly low carbon, as the belief was that mixture would impart both hardness and flexibility. When they saw how higher carbon levels added to the attributes, it had a revolutionary impact on the English, French, and even Russian metal industry. But that's not why I'm covering it, as part of the Iron Age. Instead, it was wood steel that led to something even more regionally specific and more pertinent to the Middle East, and that's Damascus steel. In the Middle East, ingots of wood steel were imported from both southern India and Sri Lanka. It's thought that Arab traders first brought these ingots to the region. Blacksmiths in Syria, specifically in and around Damascus, hence the name, would form the ingots into sword blades that were reputed to be the best in the world. Why? Well, they were tough, resistant to shattering, and capable of being honed to a sharp, resilient edge. All of these qualities leading to an almost mythological view of such weapons, with beliefs ranging from the ability to cut through a rifle barrel 
to it being so sharp it would slice a falling hair. Once the Indian Wootstil ingots arrived in Damascus, they would be further forged and worked into the Damascus steel blades. So, the secret wasn't just in India, nor exclusively in Syria, but in both places without any one person knowing how to make the secret sauce. Literally much in the same way that Coca-Cola has been able to keep their syrup a trade secret for over a century. But why did this center around the city of Damascus? That city, in the first several centuries AD, was well known for its weapons-producing smiths, weapons like swords and daggers. Of course, this isn't a podcast about metallurgy, but is instead about history. So, I've got to speak on that for at least a minute. It's thought that the Wootz ingots began appearing in the Middle East around the 3rd century AD, well after Jerusalem fell to the Romans and after Christ and the Apostles walked in the region. It was, though, completely present when the Crusaders arrived in the 11th century AD. And it was their experience fighting against the Islamist swords allegedly slicing through their own, without even dulling, that added to the legend of the metal and maybe even led to their eventual ouster from the region. And the importation of Woot still would continue for the next 1400 years, until the 17th century. Then it mysteriously disappeared, but not suddenly. Instead it was more of a gradual decline, eventually completely ceasing sometime around 1750 AD. At least for bladed weapons, a few gunsmiths during the 18th and 19th century used a similar technique for gun barrels, though this didn't last long, only until the turn of the 20th century. This shouldn't come as a surprise, as the metal needed for a high-pressure gun is completely different than that needed for a sword or knife. As for the mysterious decline, there are several theories. The first is that the trade routes broke down. And when something like this happens, it's likely due to economics. Wootz was imported to Damascus from India, thousands of miles away and via an unfriendly land route. Such a long distance would mean that anything more than the slightest disruption in the flow of the metal from India to the bladesmiths could have easily shut down production in Syria. If it was shut down for too long, the Syrian smiths would have needed to find alternate raw material sources or stop producing altogether. And the latter is the worst case because if it went on for too long, the skill could be lost. More on that in a minute. Another economic reason is rather obvious. Swords were being replaced with guns and there's no need to import steel ingots over land from thousands of miles away to produce a weapon that had quickly become obsolete. There's also the theory that the metal slowly became impure as the source of the ore changed, and without chemistry, and essentially making the steel as more of an art than a science, there was no place to return to as the original ore ran out and was replaced with a less perfect one. Remember the metal used wasn't just iron and carbon, but it also had key trace impurities that may have added to its strength and durability. If the ore was sourced from different production regions, or smelted from ores lacking these key trace elements, 
then the metal would quickly change and likely be of lesser quality. It was possible, and also owing to the art instead of science, that the best techniques were lost due to a lack of recording. Just think back to earlier in the episode when the Philistines made iron smelting a state secret. A downfall to being secretive is that it's easier to lose. In this case, the method for controlled thermal cycling after the initial forging at a specific temperature could have been forgotten, or something similar. And with such a secret, one that was never formally recorded, meaning written down, when that is lost, it's gone forever. Are you listening, Mom? I need that peach cobbler recipe, not just one that's similar. A final reason it could have been lost is that beginning in about 1605, various European countries began to control more and more of India, the Dutch, the French, and most notably, the British, who took control of most of the subcontinent in 1858 as what's known as British Iraj. All of these European powers, to various extents, exerted control over the native Indian industries, including the production of roots still. Of course, these are just theories, and the truth could lie elsewhere, or it could be similar to when I covered the Bronze Age collapse. It could have been a combination of all, or some. Whatever it was, the secrets to making Woot Steel was lost to the passage of time. And with that, Damascus Steel and the edges it provided, well, that died too. Recently, Meaning in the past few decades, and owing greatly to the nearly mythical qualities of Damascus steel, there has been renewed interest in recreating it. Some have tried reverse engineering, meaning essentially attempting to duplicate the process for Woot steel, and also the process done in the Syrian city for producing blades. Not surprisingly, most have not worked, and those that believe they have are debated about how close they actually came to reproducing it. The more scholarly researchers have looked at the molecular structure, which is where the understanding of the nanotubes and nanowires comes from. And while this has resulted in a greater understanding of what makes it special, it is yet to produce a duplicate. But there's something else. Modern blades, even those found on many kitchen knives, tend to outperform Damascus blades. So, it's more of a historical curiosity. Do note that the modern blades are usually the result of a better overall understanding of steel, the use of more exotic materials, and hotter production processes. But for their time, Damascus steel was considered the best in the world especially for bladed applications. There's also a confusion of Damascus steel with what's known as pattern welding. I'm not doing a deep dive into that metal forming process as it's outside the scope of the podcast. Just know that pattern welding is a derivative of a metal lamination process where Damascus steel is single piece forged. This confusion started in the 1970s when a prominent knife maker began calling his pattern-welded knives Damascus knives. And if that wasn't confusing enough, something similar has happened in gun making. Before the 20th century, 
Shotgun barrels were forged by heating narrow strips of iron and steel and shaping them around a mandrel. In the industry, the process was known as laminating, and in many cases took on the name Damascus, though, as noted, the original Damascus bladesmiths did not use lamination. Many of these shotguns were made by higher-end British and Belgian gunsmiths. Because of the manufacturing process, the barrels were inherently weak and could not withstand the stronger smokeless powder that was coming into use, and they would fail in a dramatic, many times dangerous manner. Due to the association with the Damascus name, these shotguns garnered a poor reputation, though there are a few modern gunmakers that produce internal, non-pressurized gun parts in what they refer to as stainless Damascus. These two are not in any way similar to the Damascus steel of lore, as the modern version is made from what began as powdered steel and merely has a swirled finish. People, words mean things, and let's not add to the confusion. And that's a good stopping point for this episode and the Iron Age. Join me next week when I'll continue pressing forward with the people, places, and things found in Deuteronomy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.